Amen. Zephaniah. So remember the name Zephaniah means. Matt is so encouraged right now. Yahweh hides. Yahweh hides. And so uh, <clears throat> it would appear that God, um, you know, Zephaniah prophesied uh, before and during the reign of King Josiah. And if you know, Pastor Matt was talking a little bit about Josiah last week, and which is one of my favorite uh, sections of Scripture. And the reason that Josiah became king at such a young age is because when his wicked father was uh, murdered, they killed everybody in the king's family because they didn't want any more wicked kings. And Josiah was hidden away. And that's how Josiah then was discovered, and that's why he became king at such a young age, because he was the only living heir. Meanwhile, there's a prophet God has, Yahweh hides. And so God was in the business of hiding people and then revealing them at the right time or protecting them or whatever the case may be. So remember, uh, one of the things that Pastor Matt said last week was that God's love is not only tender, but it's tough. Remember that conversation? So maybe this week you were like, you know, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to prepare myself for Wednesday night. I'm going to Read Zephaniah. You know, you can read the whole book of Zephaniah in no time, three quick chapters, but maybe you just sat down and said, I'm going to read Zephaniah 1, try to get a handle on where Pastor Tony is. You read Zephaniah chapter 1, you're like, man, I am depressed. Well, don't be. Uh, you know, it's an amazing uh, book in the Bible. It, it can take a minute to work through and to process, uh, but it has a lot to teach us. Now, Zephaniah is one of the most, uh, not just obscure books of the Bible, like you almost never hear about, you know, I've preached on Sunday morning uh, here and other places from Zephaniah 3, but you barely would ever hear anybody preach a sermon out of Zephaniah. Most people aren't familiar with Zephaniah, and there's not a lot of, inf we probably have less information about Zephaniah than we do any other biblical uh, prophet or writer. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a little intriguing. So uh, me and Pastor Matt have had to do some archaeological digging uh, in preparation for this series, but it's been good. So he said God's love is not only tender, but it's tough. Now, <clears throat> love, the love of God, love seeks the best interest of the beloved. And certainly we've been talking a lot about love as we've been working through 1 Corinthians 13. But notice what, how the, uh, just another of the thousands of ways the Bible would illustrate the love of God. John 15, I am the true vine and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what that tells us is, is that God loves the branches that are fruitful so much so that he prunes them, right? So his, his love 
is displayed towards the branches in pruning. Which is not the branch's favorite day, is it? You know, the branch is sitting there and all of a sudden here comes the vine dresser with the loppers, you know, and the branch is like, ah, you know. But the vine dresser is closest to the branch during the process of pruning. That is the moment that the vine dresser is at the absolute closest proximity to the branch. So we have to see God's love like a diamond with many facets. And we have to realize that there is so much to the love of God. And we have to realize that oftentimes the way God loves us doesn't always feel like love. But it is indeed love. And if we did not have that love, it would be terrible. So after the three dangers that Judah was facing, remember we had the danger of idolatry last week, the danger of uh, a divided heart, and the danger of apostasy. Remember that? Then the prophet calls on the people of Judah. Remember, Israel at this time is gone. The northern kingdom doesn't even exist. This is a, a low point in the history of God's people. And so here he calls them to be silent. No more talking. You know, moms, when you just tell your kids, zip it. You know, your kids just know, like, the next person to talk is going to be bad. So you just don't say anything. Because, like, I just, that's what, what God says. Look at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, exclamation point. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials of the king's and the king's sons, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, and those who fill the, their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. So what God says is, no more talking. I've heard enough. No more calling on Baal. No more uh, of your invoking the stars or swearing to Molech or any of the nonsense that's been going on. I'm done. I want to point out a few things about uh, these verses, verses 7 and following, before you flip the page and we move on. Um, you might want to, on verse 8, it says, I will punish the officials of the king's son. So now Josiah reigned and brought revival to the nation of Judah and he had sons and uh, and we studied some of his sons in the under authority series all of his sons were wicked and it didn't go well and so <clears throat> the king's sons the reference to the king's sons could very well be to um, Josiah's sons but then he says and all who array themselves in foreign attire I would put out to the side of that, Matthew 22 and Luke 14. That's the New Testament parable of the wedding feast. And in the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus tells a parable of the, the king who is 
celebrating a wedding feast, and the problem that occurs is that someone comes into the wedding feast and is wearing the wrong attire. They're not wearing the wedding garment. And so the king has that person bound up and removed and so on and so forth. You cannot come into the kingdom your own way, right? That's the message of that. You, you come in only by the way that the king allows you to come in. And so when we, this reference here to the foreign attire also would reference that, but it would also be linked to the fact that when they would go into the temples of these false gods, when they would worship Baal or worship Molech, they would put on garments. And multiple times in the Old Testament, it talks about um, these garments that they would wear into these false temples. And so you want to you know, realize that that was also part of that. Then when he says in verse 9, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. You can put 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Remember the story in the Old Testament where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Every time the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, it's an amazing story and it's super hilarious because of things that happened. They take the Ark of the Covenant, they bring it to Ashdod, remember, and they store it there. They put it in the room there in, their, in the temple in Ashdod. They come back the next morning and it's toppled over and it's, uh, the palms are broken off of the, you know, Dagon, the false god. Remember that because it was in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And the next verse, verse 6 of first. Uh, of uh, chapter 5 says that it was broken over the threshold. Dagon was broken over the threshold. And from that day on, whenever they went to worship the false god, they stepped over the threshold. So what had become this tradition of stepping over the threshold, it made me think about that because some, some people think that Stepping on a threshold is bad luck or something like that. It's actually uh, linked to, it's, it all started with idolatry from that moment of Dagon in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So that's a link to that. But what we want to see here is we want to first build around this principle that although God's people often forget him, he doesn't forget them. Because you want to you notice how uh, yes, God's frustrated, and yes, the things God says are uh, difficult. Like, for example, when God talks about uh, preparing the sacrifice, He says, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials of the king's son. Hmm. What do you mean by the, the day of the Lord's sacrifice and all who array themselves and I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Well, what does that mean? Well, God prepared Judah like a sacrifice, meaning he prepared her for slaughter much like a sacrificial animal was prepared to be eaten. You see, even prior to Zephaniah coming on the scene, God had been warning Judah over and over and over to repent and nobody listened. And they kept going and kept going. And God had promised that he was going to deal with them. 
And so now it's to the point where God says, you know, I've prepared a sacrifice. Now, if Judah is the sacrifice, then the question is, who are the invited guests who are coming to partake of the sacrifice? And believe me, everyone who heard Zephaniah say this knew exactly what it meant. The Babylonians. See, God had prepared Judah as a sacrifice. And he had determined in his sovereign will that he was going to use the Babylonians as his chosen instrument of destruction. So essentially they were going to eat Judah. You see, he had consecrated and set apart an ungodly people for his purpose. Again, you know what this makes me think of? This makes me think of exactly what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians about mistaking being used by God for godliness. Remember, here's an example of the Babylonians being, they're the vessel God used. Now, is God trying to say something godly about the Babylonians? About the vessel? It's not about the vessel. It's about the God who uses the vessel. The God who uses the vessel. If we can get that, my goodness, what a drastic impact it will have on the way we operate in the kingdom of God. Verse 10, on that day declares the Lord, he says, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, you know all of the cities, so in Jerusalem, there were gates. Remember, if you ever read the book of Nehemiah, when they were rebuilding the walls, it tells you about all the gates around the city that were rebuilt. You know, it's kind of hilarious. There's the dung gate, which always cracks me up. Like, I'd never want to live next to the dung gate. But the fish gate. And so that we know where these gates are located around the city. And we know that the fish gate would have been the gate that was in proximity to the fish market. We also know it would have been in the northern. It's on the northern side of the city. And what do we know about the northern side of the city? We know that guess where the Babylonians entered when they came and ate the sacrifice? Through the fish gate. See, God is being very specific here. He's being very specific about what's going to happen and exactly how it's going to happen. Now, I want us to just pause for a second and think. Sometimes a parent tells a child in great detail what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And it's completely out of love. Trying to discipline the child. Trying to... because. You know that the, the, much of the benefit of discipline comes from the understanding of the child of what the discipline is about, right? And what the discipline is meant to do, right? And so here we have, it would be very easy for us to recoil against this and miss 
the fact that, wait a minute, why is God going to such detail? Because he loves his people. That's why. And it's, it, just, it just reeks with the love of God that he goes to such detail to tell them. Now, what's more shocking about this is the central theme of this whole section, which is the part that begins in verse 12, which is what we're going to move to now. But I just want you to understand that all of this detail is leading to now we're going to see what's going on. God's going to direct Zephaniah towards the complacent. The complacent. And he's going to be very direct, just like he was in the first six verses, about what the problem was, because he wants us to know. See, I think that when, when God is displeased with us, first of all, I don't believe that there's ever a time that a saved person is unaware of the displeasure of God. I don't believe that. It's certainly not true in my life. I know when God's displeased with me. And the reason I know is because the Holy Spirit tells me. And He tells you that we feel conviction. We feel, we know. You know that. And here's why. Because God wants you to know. And God gives us His Word so that we will know. Because if, if we didn't know, like it, what good would it do if we were if we were disobedient, unaware, suffered harm for that, and without any knowledge or understanding, and then just kept on going, where where would be the benefit of it? And isn't it interesting that when we come to faith in Christ, so those of you in the room especially who are like me and you came to faith in Christ later in life, especially in your late teenage or adult years, then here's what happens. You come to faith in Christ, and immediately after salvation, you look in the rearview mirror of your life, and all of these things start to make sense to you. All of these ways that God preserved your life when He didn't have to, all of these ways that God, you know, protected you from calamity or ushered you into calamity and used the calamity to bring you to a point of repentance and salvation. All these things start to make sense. And what, what that's telling you is, is that's God's protocol for in the life of a Christian. So it's that way at salvation looking back. And it's that way every day as we walk in step with God, God wants us to be aware. Now, I don't think we're all equally aware. I think that we play a role in our awareness. We absolutely do. And so the degree to which we engage with God's Word, I would say this. It's the simple way to say it is the degree to which we abide in the vine. The more we abide in the vine, the more aware we are of the heart of God working in our life in every area. But it's of great value. And so God turns now to the complacent. Look at verse 12. So at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Now, I just want you to understand something. Does God need to search anything? Does he not know anything? And it's very interesting to me the way God says this. I'm going to search Jerusalem with lamps. Like, God, you control the sun. Why are we using a lamp? 
I think that what God wants us to see here is the painstaking way in which he's going to go about this. The degree of, uh, of discipline and the degree of, of focus. He's going to search with lamps. Then he says, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Hmm. So, to be human is to fight the battle of apathy. All of us fight this battle and we we wage it continuously. It, this, it, it literally means in the Hebrew, stagnant in spirit. That's what complacent means, stagnant in spirit. So if I were to tell you that, see, in my backyard, <laughs> we have a, a fire pit. And I don't understand this. I just know this to be true. I'm not projecting this on anybody else in the room. I'm just simply talking about All of the male people in my family are pyromaniacs. We just love burning stuff. I don't even know why. It's the strangest thing. It's just awesome. So whenever we got stuff to burn, I mean, you know, so now Cameron's out there. I mean, if I'm looking around, where's Cameron? I look in the backyard. You know, he's out there. He's collecting all the cardboard out of the trash, you know, and burn it. It's just, it's just some, I don't know what's wrong with us, but we just, my son-in-law's a fireman, and all he wants to do is burn stuff. I'm going, this is kind of a, you know, dichotomy here. What's going on? But anyway, if I told you that I've been trying and trying and trying and trying to start a fire in my fire pit. And I've been unable to start a fire. So yesterday I tried to start a fire. And this morning I tried to start a fire. And this afternoon I tried to start a fire. Well, you'd know if it was today. But I kept trying and trying and I couldn't do it. You would not surmise that Tony, you wouldn't say, Tony, you have a problem with, the, with your fire. Would you? There's no problem with the fire. The problems with the fuel, right? The fire is consistent. That's important. So you have to understand that our fallen nature is like a magnet to metal when it comes to being drawn away from vibrant faith and drawn into complacency. That is just the way we, that's the way the flesh is. And so if we don't fuel the fire, we will fizzle, and it will have nothing to do with the fire. God burns the fuel that we put in the furnace. And so if you don't put fuel in the furnace, it's not a fire problem. It's a fuel problem. See, if you don't put gas in your car, you don't have a a car problem. You have a fuel problem you see in Deuteronomy chapter 4 but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him see 
that he's the fire. He's constant. He's consistent. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, that's the fire. The problem's not the fire. The problem's always the fuel. See, the question is never, can God be found? That's never the question. Never. The question is always, are we seeking? You see, so if, 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 if the fire of your faith is, and look, all of us face times where we, we sense apathy setting in. Maybe we, we start to grow a little bit cold. We start to, you know, whatever the case may be. Now, you know, I will say that uh, it's, th- that's why it's important for you to have certain things in your life that constantly fuel your fire. So, in other words, if you know every week that you're going to sit down at a table with a group of men or women and you're going to talk about a passage of Scripture, you're going you're to read that passage of Scripture. So that's going to hold you accountable in that. So that's going to cause you to put some fuel in your fire every week. You see what I'm saying? So that's going to be helpful to you. And so if you, you, know, if you teach a, a, a class to, to children, you're going to study that material, or if you teach a community group, you're going to study that material, or whatever the case may be, and that's going to fuel your fire, and that's all going to be helpful. But listen, you gotta, you got to take responsibility for the fuel. The fire is consistent. This is what I can promise you about God. 30 years of walking with God, I can promise you whatever, listen, whatever fuel I put in, God burns it. He burns it. Now, granted, if you put something in there that's not fuel, he's not going to burn it. But, you know, do I need to go into that detail? In other words, fuel is reading the Scripture, praying, you know, uh, engaging with God on his level around his word. That's, that fuels you. And when, whenever you put fuel, other things, all those other things are not fuel. So whenever you put fuel, he'll burn it. He'll use it. And so it's our responsibility to keep fueling that fire. And so he talks about the complacent. The end of verse 12, he says uh, that what they're saying is, here's how he describes complacency. The Lord will not do good, and the Lord, or, nor will he do ill or evil. Now that's a strange way to, to put it. You see, what happens in complacency is that people start placing all of their confidence in the wrong things. They get all tangled up. And so things are happening, but they're not the right things. Complacency. Here's the law of complacency. Some of you will remember hearing me over the years talk about this in other sections of Scripture. Complacency always projects outward. See, there's just certain principles like fear is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whatever you fear will come to pass and it it will self-fulfill in your life. But 
I don't have time to go into that. Well, complacency always projects outward. And the reason is because of the nature of complacency. So here's what I mean. Notice how God defines complacency. They say the Lord won't do good and he won't do evil. How is that projecting outward? Do you see? Listen, whenever you become complacent, here's what happens. You become complacent. There's not fuel in your fire. You become complacent and you project outward. You begin to project your complacency onto God. Do you know what the description of a person who's complacent is? They don't do good and they don't do evil because they're complacent. And so you project it onto God. You project it onto other people. See, com- the, 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 the quickest way to identify complacency in a person's life is it always shifts blame. The way I know there's complacency in your heart is when I hear you talking and you're shifting blame. It's someone else's fault. The reason you are not burning hot for God is because of Look, if I had a nickel for every time, what do you think the most common person to blame for your apathy is? It's so easy. Your spouse. I hear it all the time. The reason that I'm lukewarm, apathetic, not is because of my wife or my husband. It's because they're not this or they're not that or Let me just say one thing, and I'm moving on. I ain't got time to get into it, but we need to say it. Listen to me, ladies. When you say to somebody, well, I'm just not this, I'm just not that, and you say, because my husband isn't the spiritual leader. Can we just clarify something? Your husband will answer for that. You will answer for your fire. You understand that? You can't just say, he's not spiritually leading me, therefore I'm just fizzling out. That doesn't work. That will not work with God. And I think there's a lot of confusion about that because, I mean, it goes the other way, but usually that's the way I hear it. Not, you know, the husband's like, well, I'm trying to lead, but she won't follow. Look, hey, you're going to answer to God for your fire. And so if God has called you to be the spiritual leader, then you're gonna, you either do it or don't do it, and you're going to have to answer for that. But you can't, bl- listen, you can't blame shift when you say it's because of my spouse, complacency. I guarantee you, every time, every time. All right, so let's talk about it because it'll be fun. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. See, you're getting all my, my, my goodies tonight, man. These are my, some of my favorite principles in the world. It's not hate, it's indifference, right? So the opposite of life is not death, it's complacency. Do you know what death is? The absence of life. 
Not the opposite of life. The opposite of life is complacency. So what a complacent person is doing is searching for life. See, when your fire's fizzled out, there's no life. You don't have any life. That's what it is. There's no life. And so here's the thing. Whenever you don't have any life in you, the, the tendency just will overwhelm you immediately. It's somebody else's fault. It's somebody, you know, you're, and eventually it comes down to, well, you stay complacent. You let apathy develop into complacency, and then it's, you just believe, listen, because in complacency, what do you believe? You believe God won't do good or evil. Because if you believed that he would do good or evil, you'd do something, right? Yeah. It always projects outward. Super beneficial for you to understand that. You see, so indifference says, I don't care. That's what indifference is. That's the opposite of love. The most hateful thing you could do, the most unloving thing you could do, see, because hate takes energy. So if you hate something, you care about it, right? But indifference is the epitome of unloving. I just don't care, right? Now, well, so what does this mean? If, if I don't care is indifference, what does complacency say? Well, I care, but it's pointless. Oh, see, I care about it. That's why you're saying, well, see, I would do this if my spouse did that. It's because I care about it. But it's because they don't do that, so it's pointless for me too. You see how tricky that little move is? That's complacency. And here's the thing about complacency. I mean, if you think about it, nothing will suck the potency out of Christianity like complacency because it halts the journey of sanctification. It just halts you dead in your tracks. Like, my great fear, personally for me, would be that there would, like, that I would look back over a span of my life. I would look back. I mean, I'm just being honest with you about me. If I looked back over a month, two months, three months, and I said, I don't really think I've grown. It w- I mean, that to me is what scares me to death. That's what scares me. If I looked back over six months of my life and nothing's changed, I would be mortified. I want to be consciously daily aware of the fire. Because if I take my eye off the fire, it's going to go out. And so, now I want you to understand this. I want you to think about it. Complacent people are one of two things. They're either too busy or not busy enough. Don't think of complacency only as not busy enough. See, a lot of times we would relegate complacency to just laziness and that would be a mistake that would be a mistake i would say less if 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 
we were talking about complacency in this room, I would guarantee you that the group of people in the room that were, were complacent in laziness would be smaller than the group of people, by a long shot, who were complacent in busyness. Because remember, complacency projects outward. And so what, what happens is, what we do is, we get wrapped up, we just wrap ourselves up in other things to distract us from the fire. See, we don't have time to put fuel in the fire because we're doing these other things. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's how that works. So yes, on one hand, the not busy, sure, they, they want to focus on, uh, Pastor Matt talked about comfort a lot last week. That's a big deal. They want to get entangled in, uh, you know, what we would call civilian pursuits, you know, not wartime endeavors. That like it was just peace, like there's not a spiritual battle going on. I'm just going to rest and not do anything. Yeah. Become overly fond of. See, the, the, I would say the picture of the modern complacent churchgoer today is obsessed with. They're not doing nothing. No way. In this culture, are you kidding me? No, you're binge watching like a maniac. You're, you're burning Netflix down. That's what you're doing. You're on social media. You're, bu- you're busy, aren't you? Oh, man, yeah. You, here's a good one. You're wrapped up in other people's problems that you don't have anything to do with. You're just wrapped up in it. You, you, know the, you know the rubberneckers when there's a wreck on the road? You know them, right? Well, do you know that Christians are notorious for being rubberneckers around trouble? So here's what you do. You grew up in a family that conditioned you to do this. When, when there's a crisis with somebody in your, you know, surroundings, everybody swarms in, problem oh, oh, oh poor thing la 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 and you're just there you know to and you're not helping you're not making a difference and you love it and why do you love it because you don't have to think about your own problems it's complacency there's no fuel in your fire and the reason there's not is because you're helping them Now, I just want to let you in on a little spiritual principle. If there's no fire in my faith, I can't help anybody. And neither can you. And basically, all you've done is use this escapism to get obsessed with other people's drama and dysfunction It happens all the time. Some of you are enslaved to it. And one of the quickest ways to realize is, is that like in my world, if, if you ask me for help or I move in to help you, 
And in that helping, it's like, okay, look, here's the problem. Here's what we need to do. Here's step one, right? This is how we're going to proceed. And then, you know, a day or two later, I come back and you're still at ground zero. Have a good one. You think I'm hanging around there? How long do you think I'm going to sit there and keep saying the same thing and you're not doing nothing? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You see what I'm saying? Like that, that, in other words, for not only can you, there's two things you got to understand tonight. Not only can, this is valuable, see, and this is extra free. Not even going to charge you for it. Not only can you not help anybody if you don't have any fire going in your faith, A, but B, you can't help somebody that don't want to be helped. See, you can't get a fire going over here if they don't want any fuel. So those two things are always true. And some of you, when I just said that, you think, unloving. No, that's wisdom. That's what that is, wisdom. All right, here's the principle. Bad decisions come upon God's people through the loss of urgency. See, as soon as I lose sight of the fact that, man, i got to pay attention to this fire. You see, yeah, you know who freezes to death? The dummy that fell asleep and stopped putting logs on the fire. That's who froze to death. The person who is fixated on the fact that if the fire goes out, we're going to die. That, that, they don't freeze to death, do they? No. But the thing is, is like, is there ever a moment in my life or your life when the fire of my faith is not urgent? No. Because even when it's burning hot, I want it to stay hot. And I know that if, it, if I don't keep putting fuel in it, then it's not going to... I don't have a fire problem. I have a fuel problem, and I have to stay focused on that. See, people are not going to drift towards growth and discipline. That is never going to happen. We tend to drift towards complacency. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we do. All right. So, Proverbs chapter 1. For the turning away of the simple will slay them. I love Proverbs. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. People are our energy must be extended somewhere or exerted somewhere. And if it is not for the bigger purpose, it either boils into high drama over petty things or aimless living for lesser things. You see, it's either too busy or not busy enough. It's one or the other. You see, it's, oh, I'm so busy because I'm in high drama. You know, I just don't have any time to do this because I'm so. And here's the thing. When, the, when, the, when you got the fire going good, like it's really going good, and, the, and the, the house is warm, then you can 
You can go outside and go to the store and come back, or you can, you know, you can you can cook dinner, or you can do this, or you can do that. And it's the house is still warm and it because it's going good, right? But now what happens when it starts fizzling? Like you can't go do something else. I mean, is this making sense? I mean, is this not simple? Common sense, right? And so here's the thing. By, by keeping a sense of urgency on the fire and making sure the fire's burning hot, what it does is it gives me margin. It gives me margin. So if calamity happens or if, if things happen, unforeseen things happen or whatever the case may be, and I have to extend myself into situations and, and use up resources and energy in that. I have some stockpile because the fire's burning hot. You see? But look, I'm just saying bored people are dangerous people. They're just dangerous. If a grown man or a grown woman tells me they're bored, I'm getting away from you. I'm just getting away from you. I mean, I don't, how can a lost person, you know, it's, I struggle with a lost person saying that they're bored, but a saved person, what, what are you, what is wrong? You're bored? I mean, I don't, I, I just have no, I just don't have a, a box for that, a container that can hold that. So what kind of person is this God who created us and who will decide our eternal destiny? That's the question we want to know. Because here's the thing. We, now we, gotta, uh, we understand complacency and we understand what God's saying. And now the, the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment's coming. So, well, what kind of, what kind of person? What kind of person is this God who's going to decide our eternal destiny? All right. So here's some questions we should ask ourselves. First question is, well, what makes him happy? That's a great question. You should write out to the side, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. I'm not going to tell you what it says. You go home and look it up. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. What makes God happy? Second question, what makes God sad? What makes him sad? Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. What makes God sad? Question number three. Well, what makes God angry? That's a great question. If he's going to decide my eternal destiny, I want to know what makes him happy. I want to know what makes him sad. And I definitely want to know what makes him angry. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 7. And then... Lastly, well, what makes him sick? I definitely want to know the answer to that. Revelation chapter 3. The church of Laodicea makes him sick. He says, I know your works. Remember how affluent and wealthy they were? I know your works, that they're neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you were lukewarm and neither Hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what that is? Complacency. That's what that is. So what's scary is it's, 
it's possible to be wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked and think that you're fine. Because that's exactly what that passage says right there. And think that everything's fine. That's the scary part of the whole conversation. And how does this happen? Because if we don't understand, see, if we don't understand the character and nature of the God who will determine our eternal destiny, if we don't, if we, if we lack urgency, if we don't realize that we're drawn like a magnet to apathy, which leads to complacency, that we'll constantly battle this too busy, not busy enough. Too busy, not busy enough. And I would say that probably everybody in the room has a tendency towards one of those more than the other. And you could tell by just the things I've said tonight that my tendency clearly is not towards not busy enough. It would be towards, right? Because, I mean, if I can't stand bored people, then hey. I mean, if I get sick, being sick makes me miserable, but not half as miserable as laying around trying to get well makes me. I hate laying around. Like, I love it for about a day, but then I'm like ready to just lose my mind. I can't do it. Now, that's, that's not better than the other because it can, both paths will lead you down. That's just, listen, that's just as dangerous as slothfulness. One's not better than the other. We just, it just sounds better in our, you know, uh, American dream mindset you know but it's not it's just as deadly and I got to be careful every single day I got to be urgent about being careful because I I realize that I could be poor blind and naked and wretched and think that I'm fine and see this is what happens what happened in Laodicea Laodicea is this is what happens when we we equate, well, of course you're going to get stuck now because I love technology so much. It's such a blessing. This is what happens when we equate material blessings with God's favor. You know how Laodicea got into, got into the shape they were in? Because they said, well, God must be, look at how God's blessing us. So he must be pleased. That doesn't even make any sense. You know how to know if God's pleased? To know what makes him happy. Right? Don't, God didn't just leave us out there to just wing it and figure out, well, I wonder how God feels about this. No, he's very, this whole chapter is telling us how specific he is about the way he feels about things, right? Correct. So see, like, you know, as a parent, you oftentimes do things for your children, not because they deserve it, just because you can, just because you want to, just because you want to be a blessing to them, just because you... So what happens to a child who grows up in a home where they understand everything operates on the principle of, if you obey me you're rewarded and if you disobey me you are punished huh yeah look at the disaster some of your lives were growing up because you grew up 
in a system where your love was doled out very conditionally. When you say, well, God must be pleased because look at how he's blessing me. What you're doing is you are slandering the name of God. You're saying that God is like that wicked parent that doles their love out according to your uh, merit. That is not what God's like. If God loved me according to my merit, I would be a french fry right now. And so would you. So do not ever do that. Maybe God's blessing you just because He's good. And you're wicked and evil and don't deserve it and He's just good. You ever thought about that? Yeah. Sure. You know, God let it rain and feed the earth today all around us. And guess what? There was a whole bunch of people that got their earth fed that are wicked and evil. But he fed it. Now, what if they thought, well, look, God sent the rain, so he must be pleased. I mean, we, we, can, we got a vivid, crazy, wild imagination about God, don't we? We can make up some bizarre things about it. And we don't even think about, wait a minute, what am I saying about God when I say this? No, the way to know whether or not God's pleased with you is based on what God says. If he's pleased with what's happening. But, but here's the thing, the point is not, uh, you know, because God, God's love is constant, but we experience His pleasure based on our obedience to His Word because our, our interaction with His law is what creates consequences, right? But His love is constant. So I'm always saying, like, the God loves you, that's an orange. Okay? Reaping and sowing, that's apples. So you got oranges and you got apples in your buggy. And the oranges never change. The apples, sometimes you got good apples, sometimes you got bad apples. You do dumb things, you get bad apples. You do good things, you get, you know, apple cobbler. But what happens is we make fruit salad. And we just jack up the whole thing. And then we start thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, I got, God must love me more when I get good apples. And he loves me less when I get bad apples. You see how, the, what, where did we come up with that? That's not in the Bible. It's very important that we understand, we think about, because that, this is how the devil gets us complacent, is by just twisting and perverting simple things about God and getting us all tangled around. Instead, here's what we should do. We should do, because of who we are and where we live. We need to learn how to face abundance. You want me to give you a, the, a great tool to fight complacency, be a good steward of abundance. You know what gets us off track so many times? So many complacent people are complacent because they're eating good apples. And then they just get, you know, fat and lay on the couch and take a nap. And then the fire goes out. 
And then they wonder why they froze to death. I'm telling you, we got to learn how to we got to learn how to how to handle favor. You know, for example, Paul says in Acts chapter 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Okay? So, that's just a fact. That's a fact. Like there's nobody entering with not without tribulation. That's not like for the just the super spiritual or the apostles or you know no that's for everyone. Matthew chapter 5 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's just a principle. That's the way it works. So we got to learn how to face abundance. Paul did that so he says in Philippians 4 I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know what we do? You know what the American uh, uh, curse is? Fire gets low, temperature gets cold. You know, we stand it as long as we can stand it. This is what we do. We And we put on more layers and we're rubbing ourselves and... You know, I don't understand this, but when my wife gets cold, she makes sounds. And I'm like, that doesn't create warmth. Like, I'm, I'm confused. Like, what are the sounds about? But anyway, so she makes sounds. So you're cold, and so you make sounds, and you rub yourself. And then when you can't stand anymore, then you fuel the fire. That's what we do. We can't stand anymore, so we run over and we fuel the fire. But when it's warm and toasty and comfy, we don't know how to handle abundance. You know what we do? We lose our urgency. Remember what Pastor Matt said? We live for comfort. We live. Live. We're more passionate about our comfort than anything in this country. So when Christians come here from other countries and they're excited, man, because they're coming to the, you know, the Mecca of Christianity, like, oh, I can't wait to see it. And then they get here and they're like, hmm, it's not very great. Now we have more missionaries coming into the United States than we're sending out. That ought to encourage you. So when they come... What astonishes them about the way we live as Christians in the United States? The first thing is how little we pray. You, you, ought, to, you ought to talk to a Christian from Korea, for example, where Christianity just exploded. They think we're a joke. They go, into the, they go into church an hour, sometimes two hours before the service begins, and it'll just be lined up with people down on their face, prostrate, praying, before the service even begins. And trust me, I believe I, was, I, I, I missed my call. I should have been a Korean pastor because when a Korean pastor starts preaching, ain't nobody looking at their watch. 
They want them to go and go and go and go. They can't get enough. They come here and they're like, what in the world? The second thing that astonishes them is the amount of waste and how much of our money we spend on ourselves. You know, the, the countries that have the least sacrifice the most. Like they get the most accomplished. It's amazing. The people who have the least amount of resources give the most to build the kingdom. The third thing that astonishes them is our fear of telling others about Jesus. They don't understand that. It just doesn't even compute in their vernacular. A Christian, a Chinese Christian, would they they would they would think that there was some translation problem if 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 they thought that we weren't just telling everybody about Jesus. First of all, they they couldn't imagine. They do it all the time, and their dream would be to live in a place where they could do it all they wanted to and not have to worry about persecution. And then when they come to a place like that and no one does it, it would be like going to Disneyland and there's all millions of people in Disneyland and nobody rides a ride. So Proverbs 1, remember it says, The turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But the very next verse says, remember, it's, it's, sometimes love sounds tough, but it's love. Look, the very next verse, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. And so I say this all the time. The value of a promise is dependent on the character and the ability of the person making it. You see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the promise is until you've evaluated the promise maker. I say this all the time. Like if one of you promises to give me a million dollars, trust me, I'm not going to sweat it. Because you ain't got it, and so you're not going to give it to me, so... It's pointless for you to say that. Now, if you have the character and the ability to do that and you say that, now nah, you got my attention. So see, when God promises something, it's not the value is not first in what he says, it's in who says it. He has the capital and the track record of character to deliver. That's what's beautiful about the promise of God. So all of the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1, are yes and amen, you see? So, to pull it all together, the fact that all of these behaviors listed in chapter 1, all the dangers from last week, and then this whole issue of complacency, bother God to such a great degree, tell us one overarching thing about the character of of God. And what is that? That he cares. Because a God that didn't care would not go to all the trouble to say all the specific things, the way it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, why it's going to happen. And then he even says he's going to search with a with lamps out all the people that are complacent. When he talks about complacency, the very next thing he does is promise. 
But if you'll listen to me, you'll be safe. You'll be safe. And he has the, the resources to protect us. Amen? So why don't we keep the fire of our faith burning hot? And, and every day be aware of the danger that we have of being complacent. And ask yourself, you know, was I, what was I urging about today? What were you urging about today? And what will you be urging about tomorrow? Be good for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us that we know what makes you happy.